I want to begin by asking how many college football fans are in the house right now? Yes. Okay. So now's your chance. Shout out your team. Who's your team? Who are you rooting for? Oh, I heard Michigan. I heard a quack. Yeah, I heard the Ducks. Yeah, yeah, good, awesome. Online, please put it in the comments. Well, here's the thing. I want to talk about what everyone else is talking about around college football, and that is a man. Can I do that? Because the, 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 uh, the, football, the Colorado football program just hired a new coach. We have a picture of him right here. If you don't know, his name is Deion Sanders, better known as Coach Prime. Now, if you, had, if you were to ask me to describe this man in one word, I would choose the word confidence. Some of you would choose a different adjective. Please don't say it out loud. I understand that there's different opinions of him, but here's the thing. You and I can agree that one thing that Coach Prime does not lack is what? Confidence, right? This man oozes confidence. And here's what, um, why I believe um, this is impactful, because he, in a very short amount of time, has turned the program around. He has brought buzz to the, the football program and, um, and it really the stir of college football, so much to the point where some of you are like, wow, it's really made it to church. I've been trying to avoid this guy because everyone's talking about him. I mean, really, the only other person that's gotten more headlines regarding football other than Deion Sanders, as you guessed it, Taylor Swift. I mean, she just, she just runs everything, right? She's just in control, Taylor. But um, Coach Prime has had quite the impact, really. And I just want to just highlight for those of us who, have, you know, you just don't watch college football or haven't been paying attention, I do want to highlight the, the significance of this one man and his confidence, because for those of us who know, they are now four and two, um, and that's, that's actually huge from last year's season where they were one and 11, right? So it's a significant turnaround in the first six games. And in the first three games, they were undefeated, and, and, and if it wasn't for the Oregon Ducks who had to ruin a perfectly great Cinderella story, they would still be undefeated. But yeah, the Ducks, Ducks had, to, had something to say about that. Um, since uh, he's been co- the head coach, the home games have been selling out, and this has not happened um, in the last 27 years. So they're finally having their home games sold out, and at one point, I don't know if this is still true, the average price for tickets to go and watch the Colorado uh, um, Buffalo football program at home was at an all-time high. It was the highest ticket average in the nation. We, we know that uh, in their early games, they had the highest viewership. That means more and more millions of people were watching their games despite Alabama and SC and other teams having, you know, better rankings. And studies have shown that in the first three weeks alone, the, the school got more than $90 million in school exposure. And if that doesn't top it, Little Wayne is now doing their entrances, guys. I mean, things are litty in Boulder, right? And I bring this all up to say that one thing that this story has brought to my attention is this, is that confidence, even if it originates in one man, can ignite change. 
Confidence can ignite change. And so today, I want to I wanna talk about confidence. Can we talk about confidence? Yeah. If you're watching online, just type confidence in the chat. I want to first by offering my definition of what confidence is. I, I think in formulas, probably because at one point I taught a lot of math, but here's what I think about um, when I think about confidence. It's this. It's when self-esteem plus your certainty of one's abilities empowers one to courageously face a challenge. So think about those elements, right? Self-esteem and confidence in one's abilities. Another way to think about confidence would be how we answer this question, and that's this. Who am I and what am I capable of? Who am I and what am I capable of? I believe that the way we begin to answer those questions highly determines our experience with confidence. Now, this is a universal human experience. I'm convinced that at one point or another, each and every one of you faced a situation where you wish you had more confidence. Do you agree? Right? Well, I think about how, you know, simple things like facing a home repair you've never done. Okay, I'm speaking from personal experience here. Right? Or maybe for you, it was that last job interview where you reflect back and just wish you had more confidence going in. For some, it could be just the daily experience of choosing an outfit. That could be stressful, right? Some of you are like, no, flannels every day for me, right? <laughs> or it could have been for us young athletes, the last soccer game or football game or volleyball game or color guard event that we participated in, we wish we had an ounce of more confidence. Or can you think back at that time where you didn't have the courage to ask your crush to homecoming? And there in one sentence, I describe my high school experience right there, <laughs> if you're wondering my experience. And so we all want more confidence, but we want it without the risk of appearing arrogant. And isn't there a fine line between the two? confidence and arrogance. But here's the thing. I believe it's a good thing to desire to be more confident because it wouldn't be a good thing to desire the opposite because consider what's the opposite of confidence. Insecure, right? Lack of direction. Um, it could be um, just being overly shy and being crippled by that. I, I don't, I've never met a person who spent a lot of good money talking to their therapist about how they can grow their insecurity, right? No one enters that conversation. They enter the opposite. And so if you haven't already guessed it, we're starting a new series today and for the next three weeks that we are calling Do All Things. Can you say that with me? Feel free to type it out in the chat. Um, and so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing a, 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 a flyover over one of the letters of Paul, specifically to the Philippians. And so because we're going to be studying this letter, I thought it would be good, at least in the first week, to consider the author. Consider the man most of us simply know as Paul. Well, if you don't know Paul, here's what you need to know. He's credited to have written one-third of the New Testament 13 of the letters that we have in the New Testament are credited to him. He is a 
missionary, trailblazer. He's one of the original church planters. He is who we believe God handpicked through Jesus to go and bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Uh, uh, he is, you know, known as the 12th apostle. And I mean, I mean, this guy, he's one of the goats of the Bible, right? One of the goats of the Bible. And we know him as Paul. And it made me think, isn't it true that all the great ones simply go by one name? Bele, Jordan, Brady, Paul, and now maybe Lillard, now that he has a new team? Yeah? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. Madonna. Okay. Um, I like that. I like that. I'm going to use that for the 11. Yeah. My mind did not go to Madonna, right? I was... I was thinking sports, yeah. I'm glad we added a woman to the list. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's good. Um, here's the thing. When I read about Paul, and I read about his life in Acts, because you can, you can, before you read his writings, you can read about him. Um, I, read, I read about his life, um, the stories told of him, captured in the Bible of him. I read his letters, his content, and I am convinced that this man did not lack confidence, he is so sure in his writing. He's not second-guessing. He's not suggesting. He is informing. He is commanding. He is exhorting through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul was a confident man. And he's writing to the Philippians, and here's what we know about the Philippians. We can hear, we can read about Paul's experience in this city, the city of Philippi in Acts 17. There's some exciting things that happen in that city, and that gives us the backdrop of what we can understand what was going on um, in that church. And some scholars believe that this letter that we read was 10 years after he had planted the church. And when we say church, I know it was helpful for me to understand that we're not talking about, you know, a large gathering of hundreds or even dozens of people. Scholars would say that this was probably more like 20 to 30 believers meeting in a home. And so here's this, um, this letter written, and, and if you can, you can narrow it down to one simple sentence, we would say that the letter of the Philippians was a missionary thank you letter. A missionary thank you letter. You've, you've probably, those of us who've been generous to a nonprofit or we've supported a missionary, we know that time, um, over time, we get letters that report back how they are doing. And they always do what? They always thank you. They say thank you for your ongoing support. And so we know that the Philippians, they sent a monetary gift with one of their guys to Paul, who during the time of his writing was actually in jail. And there's debate whether he was locked up in jail with no access or whether he was more experiencing something more like a house arrest where people can come. Yeah, Paul was in house arrest, right? What a gangster, right? And so here's... Here's the situation um, that we should also know real quick is that this city in Philippi, it's a Roman colony, and it's actually well known to have been the resting place for a lot of retired veterans. And so if you go home and read this letter, you're going to see a lot of military imagery and language. There's a reason for that. That was the dominant culture. But not only that, they were a mix of Greeks and Romans. And one of the values of the Greco-Roman world was high status. People cared who you were in, in your class. And so 
for Christians now, that mattered because when you decided to follow Jesus in the city of Philippi, you went from the top to the bottom. You just went right down to the bottom of the ladder. And so, and it didn't help that not only are they experiencing this total worldview change or social class change, they're not at the bottom of the social ladder, but it didn't help that their founder, their leader, their pastor, where was he? He's locked up. He's in prison. And more than that, we read um, that they're having drama. They're fighting one another. We're hearing that there's teachings that are saying, hey, you still got to be circumcised to be saved. And so he calls them dogs, these dogs that are teaching these evil teachings. And so there's all this stuff happening. And I bring all that up only to say this. I believe that here was a body of believers, 20 to 30 people, who desperately needed a confidence boost. They needed some confidence. Things were not going their way. They were up against some real internal and external challenges. And I'm going to go as far to say that Paul was what Dion was to the program, right? He was the man for the job to turn things around. And so I want to look at not only Paul, but I want to look for the confidence in his writing. And so here he says in verse 3 in chapter 1, He writes to them, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He is simply celebrating their faith, their belief, their yes to Jesus from the first time he preached to them. And here's where the confidence lies. He says, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We're going to unpack that a little bit later. But he later says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And so as I read Paul, I'm reminded of this truth that Paul is oozing with confidence, and confidence can ignite change. I mean, let's consider more of what he says later on in the letter. He says these, I'm going to call them confident words. He says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's talking about him being in prison. We read that that he is... um, not only able to share his faith with those around him, that it's very clear, those of of them that are around his circle during his imprisonment, that they are understanding why he's there. He's able to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, but he also says that the believers are emboldened because of his situation. He's reframing their, his circumstances. But he also says this, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. I will not be put to shame in anything. Christ will be exalted in my body regardless of how this ends. I am confident that Christ will be exalted. And then he later says, in reference to what he should do or how he should feel, he says, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Can you imagine receiving a letter with such confidence? and what that would do for those believers. 
And so we should ask, how did Paul become so confident? Did he play a lot of sports growing up, right? Did he have emotionally available parents? Well, here's two things that I believe Paul uh, did that rooted his confidence. The first one is that Paul had an identity shift. Paul had an identity shift. I go back to share what I said about confidence. Confidence comes down to who you are and what you believe you are capable of. Well, Paul, before he was Paul, was known as Saul, and we could read about this transforming moment in his life in Acts 9. Well, what we know about Saul is that Saul was very much confident in himself. He was very proud to be Jewish. Not only was he Jewish, but he was part of the most um, prized tribe, the Benjamites. So he was very proud of his race. He was very proud of his bloodline. He flexes his teachers and his education. So he was well-educated. And he definitely was very zealous for his faith to the point where what? He persecuted Christians. And that's exactly what he was determined to do when Jesus met him. But as we know, Paul literally saw the light. He literally had an encounter with Jesus. And since that moment, I believe something happened that Paul realized he shouldn't be so confident in himself any longer. When he met Jesus, he realized that someone greater than him was real and alive and calling him into a greater mission. And so we know that Jesus presented himself to Paul as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who was going to save humanity. And so Paul then made a decision that he would shift his identity from what he could do his moral accomplishments and accolades and bloodline to what Christ has done for him. Paul had a confidence shift. And isn't that what we're all invited to do as followers of Jesus? That's what it boils down to. The Bible says that you and I, we need a savior We need to stop having confidence in our own ability to fix ourselves or fix humanity, but we need to place our faith and trust in who who is able to do such things. And so this shift could be described as this. I'll offer you two definitions. You can either be self-confident. That means you accept and trust yourself and have a sense of control in your life. That is what life without Christ pushes us into. Or we can be Christ confident. We can accept and trust that he, um, we can accept and trust him and believe that he ultimately has a better plan and can present better control over our life. Does that make sense? The next thing that Paul does is he placed Faith over feelings and desires. Paul placed faith over feelings and desires. Uh, Later on in chapter 1, Paul says this. He's wrestling with his circumstance. He's literally wrestling with life or death. He knows he's on trial, and he knows it can end in him being persecuted. 
And so he says this, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful, fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far, by, is far better by far. And so what is Paul admitting? He's admitting his wish. He's admitting his desires. He's like, it would be far better for me to transition from this life and be with our Heavenly Father than to continue to have to suffer and labor on his behalf. He admits it. He's not holding back. But he says, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's saying, there is purpose for my life to continue to remain, and it benefits you. Philippian believers. And verse 25 says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And here's what Paul is doing. He's modeling that it is okay to be in touch with our feelings and desires and voice them and admit them, but we never allow our feelings and our desires to dictate our choices, to determine our life. As believers, we're called to this. We are called to live a life of conviction, of beliefs, and we allow those to drive us forward. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of when, when was this real in my life? And I want to share a quick story. This is a pivotal moment for me. Um, I was in my fourth year of teaching. I started off teaching at a private school and then found this amazing, small, new charter school that was not only serving um, students with um, um, underserved communities, in underserved communities, but it was also hosted by a Christian nonprofit. So it was the perfect blend of my passions and gifts, ministry and education. And I came in after year two of this program, and in year two, um, there was no certainty of it surviving. I mean, we had maybe 30 students, there were other similar programs that were asking less of students happening in our city. And so it was really hard to convince an 18-year-old that, hey, you come to our school, you stay off drugs, you attend 90%, you do all your homework, you commit to um, volunteer service, you go camping with us for a week. Like, we raised the bar on these young people because we believed that they were deserving of it and capable of it. But what started to happen was there was question marks of whether the program would outlive its first year. And so what I did is I went and interviewed at another job. I interviewed at a local school, a much bigger established charter school, and man, I rocked the interview. <laughs> and here I was with a decision to make because they offered me this job. And I remember going home and having conversation with family, and, and it was very evident that, that they felt, hey, this is, this is sure. This is secure. This is years, right? There's scale here. There's safety here. There's comfort here. And so I made the decision to take this new job. But have you ever made a decision where you had no peace? Well, that was me. And it took maybe three or four days where I realized, you know what? I feel like I need to really think about whether I'm going to go to this job or not. 
And so what I did was I called, uh, I met with my, my senior pastor at the time, and I just processed with him. He knew me very well. I also met with my best friend, the one that would uh, be in my, uh, uh, he was the uh, best man at my wedding. These two men knew me the best, and, and as I processed with them, what they mirrored back was, Carlos, everything that I know about you, your passions, your gifts, the people you are called to, everything is pointing to cloud and fire. And so if you feel that you need to take this risk and stay, then you, need, you have a hard phone call to make. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. I had never experienced anything like this. I hate disappointing people. Anyone with me? Like, I just don't like disappointing people. And I know how hard it is to hire someone now. So here I was getting ready to call this principal, right? Jamie, you would know how this feels. I hope you haven't had this experience. And say, hey, you know about that job? Just kidding, right? I didn't say it that way, right? But can you imagine? I said, I, actually, what I did, I, I explained it to them. I said, hey, look, I believe that I am called to stay with cloud and fire. And that's what it was. There was a desire for comfort. There was, there was, um, there was feelings about just having an easier role. Because the role that I was staying at was hard. But in that moment, I've had, and, and I say this only to say that for this choice, I made the right choice. In that moment, I allowed my beliefs, my convictions to guide my decision. And I allowed my feelings and my desires to take a back seat. And I'm here to tell you, thanks be to God, that that became the next seven years of the richest teaching and ministry experience and development of me as a person that I have ever experienced. And I would have missed out had I gone with my feelings and my desires and some opposing voices. And so I, I, I don't know why God would have put that very personal story in my heart other than that you might be someone today that you're facing something where this week you have a decision to make. And let me just tell you, anytime you choose faith and confidence in Jesus, that is going to be the better choice. It's going to lead to the bigger blessings. And I don't want you to miss out. And so I'm calling all of us, myself included, to live Christ-confident lives. And I want to just end with three ways that we can practically do this, at least described through words. The first one is trust the person. Second is trust the process, and third is trust the promise. I love when they all line up like that, all P. That's awesome. First, trust the person. Who's the person? Obviously, it's Jesus Christ. You know, we trust the person when we, we, when we consider that Jesus has our back, that God has goodwill for us. You know, Paul writes to another church in Rome, and he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in asking that question, he's making a statement, God is for you. And so that is why we can trust Jesus, because he is for us. We can also trust that Jesus is a powerful being, 
that God and the Holy Spirit are powerful beings, that they together were able to beat death and overcome the thing that awaits us all. And so um, not everything in his plan, um, sorry, moving on, trust his sovereignty. (laughs) You know, one of the things that we know is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And you can think about that however you want to think about it, but one thing that that tells me is that he has a much different vantage point than you and I share. I think about how we live life one puzzle piece at a time, and we're doing our best to put the right piece in to make a life worth living. But Jesus, he's not living in that moment. He's not living in that one piece at a time. He sees the bigger picture. Then who better to guide us than the one who sees the bigger picture? God is sovereign. The second thing we can do is trust the process. I want you to know something. If you are a follower of Jesus, and then that makes you this, you are a saint being sanctified. You are a saint being sanctified. One of my favorite musicals is um, Hamilton. How many Hamilton fans out there? I quote him just as much as I quote Paul sometimes. But Lin-Manuel Miranda, he wrote a great musical and one of his lyrics um, that Alexander himself sings. He says, there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Just you wait. Now, if you've ever heard optimism in words, that's it, right? That is someone who believes that their future version is better than their present. May I tell you that God's word says that you in Christ, your future version is better than who you came in today. And so we like to say that we are already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Why already? Because already we are a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Here's what's amazing about following Jesus is when we say yes to him, then we are in that moment, we are made new in him, which means we now look like him in the eyes of our father. We are made right with God, our Father. Already, but not yet. What's not yet? That we, each and every day, we fall short of God's standards. You and I, we can admit to each other, we are still a work in progress. Amen? And so if that's that's you, um, this week... um, and, and, you know, you've, you've had some things happen in your life where you don't, you feel like your, your week has been just a bunch of bloopers. Um, you feel like your, your season is more messy than message. Um, you, you know, if you came in today and on the way here, you were fighting with a family member. If this week um, you found yourself cussing out one of the refs on your kids' teams, right? Hopefully not, but hey, it, it happens. This is real people, right? Well, the Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning. And what that means is today, you can, you can repent 
from those things that you knew did not help your life situation, and you could turn and consider the way of Jesus. I'm going to ask Riker to come up as, as we end our time here. And uh, the last thing I want to suggest is that we can trust the promise. Now, some of us are dealing more than a bad ref call this week, right? Some of us can care less about our outfits. Some of us are facing some extreme challenges. Some of us come in here and our confidence is low because our suffering is extreme. And you're up against some of the hardest days of your life. I want to speak to you. If this week you got news that has caused you anxiety or put you in depression, if you feel like you, you and your future and your family's future is uncertain, maybe you woke up like today where early in the morning there was fog and that's what it feels like for you. You feel like you're in a fog. And it took everything for you to be at church today. If that's you, maybe you couldn't be at church. Maybe you're watching online because being in person was too much. Or maybe physically you can't get to church. I want to just say thank you for showing up. However you showed up. In person, online live, or you're watching this later. I want to admit that there's a mystery to our faith. I believe that Jesus is a healer, but he doesn't always heal, at least in the way we want him to heal. I believe that Jesus is capable of anything. He's a miracle worker, and yet some of us have been praying for years, and we have not gotten that miracle we've been asking. Well, I just want to admit that if that's you today, there's nothing that I can humanly muster up or think of that's going to add value to your situation. I believe, or I'd be willing to confess, that what you need is beyond my control. What you need, if you found yourself in any of the last descriptions, what you need is you need supernatural peace, comfort, and the presence of heaven. One that the Bible says surpasses all human understanding. You need God's touch. You need his presence in your situation. But here's what I can do. I can remind you of God's promise because we know that Jesus never guaranteed a life without suffering. As a matter of fact, he went out of his way to let us know that we can guarantee suffering in our life, didn't he? He said, in this world, in this reality, in this existence, in this body, you will face tribulation. You will face trouble. He lets us know he doesn't sugarcoat. 
He says there will be suffering in this life, but he also says, take courage, take heart. I believe that means believe in me, trust in me. I have overcome the world. And here's what he promised. He promised that one day he was going to redeem all of creation. And the way one man put it that I admire and read and encourage you to read, Tim Keller put it, he says that Jesus' promise is that he was going to make all bad things to become untrue. Let's think about that for a little bit. Because what Tim Keller is uh, known for have taught is that Jesus, he doesn't offer consolation He offers resurrection. There's a difference. There's a difference. According to Keller, he says, resurrection means that Jesus promised, and this is his own words, Jesus is saying, I have come not to take you out of the earth to heaven, but to bring the power of heaven down to earth, to make a new heaven and a new earth and make everything new. I am going to restore everything that was lost, and it will be a million times better than you can ever imagine. That's the promise. The promise is that one day we will be resurrected, and that experience will be far better than anything you and I had to endure on this earth. Resurrection, not consolation. Not empty comfort, but a remaking of our reality. Everything through Jesus is going to be made better. Everything is going to be made right. And I believe that Paul believed and staked his entire life on Jesus' promise. And so today's invitation as I invite you to bow your head, is to think about where is your confidence? Where have you placed it? The areas in your life that are shaky, what is that grounded on? Well, I want to invite you today, if if you haven't already done so, the first step, is to shift your confidence from that person, from yourself, from that thing, from that relationship, from that education, from that dream. Shift it, take it from that and put it on the person of Jesus Christ. If you've not made that decision today with every head bowed down, I'm going to invite you, if that's the decision you want to make, I want to give you a moment to respond by simply looking up at me. If you want to put Jesus as the foundation of your confidence, then you can look up at me and we can agree. He knows your heart. He knows what you need. I see you. There's anyone else online Be courageous, type in, I choose Jesus. If you're in the room, this is your moment 
you can respond to the stirring of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I see you. I see you. If there's anyone else, I see you. I see you. God sees you. God knows you. God, every heart in the room, every mind, as we choose you today, whether it's for the first time or for uh, the, the, the thousandth time, God, I pray that you would respond, that your Holy Spirit would guide, that your Holy Spirit would remind us of who we are in you, God. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who today are choosing you for the first time, God, that they would realize that every sin has been forgiven, that they have been made clean, and God, that you don't see them and their mistakes, but you see, God, you see your son, Jesus Christ, as their representative, as their advocate, and they are made new. And they can live a life of following you just like we can live a life of following you. And so I pray, God, whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we would choose this week that we're going to be Christ-confident, that we're going to trust you, uh, Jesus, that we're going to trust the process of being made new, and we're going to trust the promise that one day, one day there will be no more tears, there will only be celebration, one day there will be no more cancer, there will only be health, one day there will be no divorce, there will only be uh, reconciliation, God, that one day there will be no depression or anxiety, there's going to be health and wholeness, and we're going to be in your presence, and we're going to experience everything that you meant for us to experience. And we celebrate until we get to that day, you and what you've done for us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.